I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. He leaves away. Australia away. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanning. This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner. Jonathan strikes again. She's on a hat-trick. She comes at Molyneux. Catch is taken by Perry. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup title in front of a magical crowd at the MCG. We are joined today by Lisa Stalaker, one of the all-time greats of Australian cricket, a four-time World Cup winner, the first woman to reach the double of 1,000 runs and 100 ODI wickets, a member of the ICC Hall of Fame, and most recently inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on the Scoop podcast today and for celebrating your Australian Cricket Hall of Fame induction with us. It must be a pretty special feeling for you to look back on all you've achieved within the game and be recognised among some incredible people in Australian cricket. Yeah, it is, certainly. I've been to um, many awards night where you celebrate past players and I've, I've sat in the auditorium looking up as a current player going, what an amazing achievement all of those have. So to... To be recognised in the same um, light as those players is really special. And you're one of the most recognisable figures in cricket now between your playing days and now your career in commentary. But can you take us back to the start and and tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how you came to Australia? Yeah, so I was actually adopted at three weeks of age. Um, My parents or my father was working overseas. He was in... um, in the US. So lived in Michigan for 18 months. And then his work took us to Nairobi uh, in Kenya for another 18. And we were actually on our way to the West Indies where my father was going to study medicine in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, But um, the rest of my family were Australian citizens and I was still on an Indian passport. So we went through Australia to kind of get my Australian passport. And we basically said enough of the travel, this this country looks pretty cool. Let's settle here. So from the age of four, have um, lived in, in Australia and Sydney's really been my home ever since. Wow. It's it's pretty incredible to have had that journey to Australia and then go on to represent your country playing cricket. And so how did, tell us how cricket came into your life? What, like were your parents really into it or you just 
naturally really gifted from the get-go? Yeah, um, my father, Indian-born cricket, certainly runs in in the blood and uh, certainly is a religion, as you all know, over there. So he used to play in the backyard and I was the one that um, really wanted to make sure that I spent as much time as I could with my father. Um, you know, I was daddy's little girl, so whatever my father did, I did. And uh, I was fortunate enough to kind of play in the backyard and then he took me to the SCG when I was about seven or eight years of age and and I kind of fell in love with the game there simply because you joined in on a Mexican wave, you got hot chips, you got to wave your flags, you got to get dressed up. It was pretty cool. Then I saw kids playing on a Saturday morning and I asked my father if I could play and he said, girls don't play cricket, they're all boys. Uh, So he actually went to the local club, which was West Pennant Hills, Cherry Brook, and basically asked if his daughter could try out. And they said, she's going to be the only female um, in in our club, which... Um, I still think is probably one of the biggest clubs within the the Hornsby-Karingai area. And um, basically they said if she's okay with that, then away we go. So, you know, that was my first introduction to cricket. I joined under 10s and it wasn't until I was about 12 years of age that I realised women played cricket and there was a, you know, a domestic competition that had been going on since the 1930s and Australia had been dominating international cricket. So there was a path then that was laid out for me and I followed that. There you go. And how did you go as a 10-year-old amongst all the boys? Were you a really good cricketer from the get-go or did it take you a while to sort of find your feet? Well, let's just say the first training session I got there, uh, you know, as you can imagine, all the boys were having a look going, okay, can this girl actually play cricket? So I remember the nets and there were two side-by-nets at a school, you know, those old rickety things. Um, anyway, I managed to bowl the ball and I hit the wickets, but it was actually the other net. So <laughs> it wasn't the start I was looking for, but I was uh, lucky enough to pick up a wicket within my first delivery when I played the com- competitive cricket. So they soon loved me, the boys, because I was getting out their mates so they could tease them even more. So I became part of the group and I played with three probably three guys from under 10s to under 16s all the way through and um, you know two of them their father was a coach and one was a manager you know your typical underage the volunteers the parents helping out and they made me feel very included and um, I certainly attribute a lot of my success at the international level because of those formative years. And what was your pathway from playing with boys to then getting into state and national teams with the women? Yeah, I realised then because of Hornsby-Karingai in the senior um, division, um, there was a gentleman named Ross Anderson who was the secretary of the club and he was dating at the time Denise Annette, who was part of the Australian women's side. So that's how I kind of found out about Gordon, um, went to Gordon at the, uh, I think I was 12 years of age and then started playing women's grade cricket in the afternoon um, from 13 years of age. And so um, playing boys in the morning, women's open grade cricket in the afternoon. And, and from there it was literally playing more club cricket and then getting selected in the under 18 squad um, and uh, and then selection obviously in the New South Wales under 18 side. Were you always really driven to play for your country? Like was that always in the back of your mind that you one day wanted to put on the green and gold? Well when I first played cricket actually my first real sport that was a competitive sport was tennis 
Um, you know, I wanted to win a Grand Slam and wanted to win at Wimbledon. That was that was my dream. So I had Steffi Graf and um, uh, Stefan Edberg and Boris Becker. They were on my wall. There were there weren't any cricketers on my wall. So um, the fact that uh, I was able to play cricket from a purely fun perspective, um, team aspect, I enjoyed that. But it wasn't until probably the age of about fifteen when. I realised tennis was firstly a long haul. Um, I didn't know if I was good enough, but it was quite a lonely sport, whereas I certainly enjoyed the team aspect of cricket. So from the age of about 15, um, that's when I started to really have high aspirations to represent my country. Yeah, Lisa, you've obviously had so much success as a cricketer, as we mentioned, four World Cups. What do you think were the attributes that you had that made you a really good cricketer and enabled you to really excel at the game? Well, my father was actually a sports psychologist um, and a hypnotherapist. So I think I had a bit of a, an advantage. And this is way before, I guess, it became fashionable within sport to kind of work with a sports psychologist. So I still remember at a young age, probably 16 you know, having a, an issue with an in-swing bowler and he, you know, he basically helped me combat that. And I started to set out my goals and my little goals and what I wanted to, to achieve and how I was going to go about it. So I think that certainly gave me a huge advantage. Um, I, I'm very competitive if you ask anyone, you know, whether it's playing marbles, doing tempin bowling with my nephew, I want to win. I want to win every time I play anything. So um, as soon as I cross that line, I'm there to, to come away with the cookies, so to speak. So um, I think, you know, those two aspects of being really competitive, but also, um, you know, being able to use my mind and my mental strength uh, a little bit more probably made me a little bit different compared to the rest of the girls coming through the ranks. And you were part of four World Cup wins um, in 2005, 2013 and T20 World Cup wins in 2010 and 2012. Which one of those stands out the most in your memory and why? Yeah, I think I think each World Cup or each kind of trophy um, victory, so obviously very successful with the New South Wales Breakers, it's, it's, it's a point in time where there's a certain group of players that have worked really hard for a period of time to to get that victory. So each of them are very special, but I think you can't go past your first one. So 2005 in South Africa, and I was playing with absolute legends of the game, you know, Belinda Clark, Karen Rolton, Catherine Fitzpatrick, Lisa Kitely, Julie Hayes. I mean, the list just keeps going on. And I was fortunate enough to be part of that squad and that team. So that that's always special. And then I guess um, the 2010 T20 World Cup, we had a horrendous 2009, probably a year that I would like to scribble out of my whole career. Um, And we had a difficult time even getting to the West Indies, flights, issues, um, political unrest in Thailand where we stayed. Instead of it being one day trip, you know, or sorry, should I say about 36 hours to the West Indies, took us three days and we landed the night before our first warm-up game against New Zealand where we, of course, lost. But then even that final, you know, we only scored 106 or something like that and to defend that, that was pretty special in front of the Australian men's team. And then the final one would be obviously the 2013 because I knew um, kind of going into that, that was my last tournament and the hope um, was that I'd be able to play in the final and, and win the World Cup. 
um, in the country uh, and in a, a city, Mumbai, which um, had special meaning to me because of my grandmother and spending a number of Christmases there. So it was kind of a nice way to end my career in the country of my birth as well. Did all your teammates know that you were going to hang up the boots at the end of that tournament? I only told my family and three friends, uh, four friends, um, they came out and no one kind of guessed or knew because normally what happens for an Australian player is we have the World Cup and then you have an Ashes tour. Now everyone goes for the Ashes tour and then they retire. So I didn't want to go to the Ashes tour. I didn't tell anyone. I, in the end, I told Alana Lakeland the night before the final that I was retiring to give her time to put together whatever the press release would be, hope, hoping that we would win as well so she would be a busy woman. Um, uh, and I still remember Elise Perry out on the field. She ran past me and she said, oh, how many overs have you got? And I've gone... Done. I'm absolutely done. And she goes, huh? I said, no, I've bowled my 10 overs. And she was like, okay. Hmm. Um, And then I, after we won, I probably waited about half an hour, 40 minutes. And I went to the um, team selector and just said, you know, I'm calling it a day. And she goes, wow. Um, I kind of had an inkling. I wasn't quite sure. And then announced it in the change rooms, probably half an hour, 45 minutes later. Was it emotional scenes? Yes, emotional. Yes, I cried. You know, I seem to be crying a lot more in my older age. But yeah, it's I mean, it's very hard to to say goodbye to something that's been part of your life for as long as you can remember. But um, I was very comfortable with the decision. Um, I, you know, the Australian team had now regained the ashes. We won the T20 World Cup six months earlier, now the 50. And, you know, Elisa Healy was sitting on the sidelines in that World Cup. Um, Meg Lanning had just kind of come into the side. Megan Shute played her first tournament at 50 over World Cup. So there were some wonderful names there and they needed to take the game to another level. So I was very comfortable to leave the game in their hands. Yeah, it's it's almost like you sort of bridged three generations throughout your career. So obviously yep. when you came into the side, BC was skipper. Then there were names like Kitely, Rolton, Fitzpatrick in the team. Then towards the end of your career, you witnessed the likes of Healy, Perry and Lanning coming into the team. Um, Did the dynamic of the team change much throughout those years or was it sort of good for you to just be able to see some fresh new faces coming into the team towards the back end of your career? Yeah, I think obviously um, when I first came in, obviously all of the names that you mentioned, they did it hard. I mean, you know, they were still part of the era that had to pay to play for their country where I was the first group, my age group, were the first to come in where we didn't have to pay to represent our country. And then when you look at the next generation coming through, they were the ones that weren't working. (laughs) They were putting all their time into cricket and just studying, doing a bit of studying. Um, Though I don't think Elisa Healy or Elise Perry have finished their degrees. Um, I think they're still going. Um, But, yeah, it it was great to kind of be across those three generations Um, gave me a great respect for those players before before me and, you know, the opportunities I had compared to them. Um, and then hopefully, you know, I was part of that generation that set up for this current generation to enjoy what they're doing and being able to call themselves professional players. And, um, you know, once the pandemic moves on, hopefully we can get back to whatever normality is, which is a lot of cricket being played by the Australian women's cricket team. 
Yeah, hopefully we can see that. Um, one thing we don't see a lot of is women's test cricket. I think you played eight in your career. Where do you see the future of test match um, cricket in the women's game? Yeah, well, one thing I can certainly tell you is that players around the world want to play test cricket. When you turn on your TV, regardless of what country you're in, um, you know, you see that test cricket is the premium product and it's treated that way by all the national boards, really. Um, so when it's not available for the female players, you kind of scratch your head and go, okay, let me break this down. I can understand that T20 cricket is the vehicle to the, to the game and, and broadening it. Absolutely agree. And, and that's why we're in this fortunate um, situation where the players are getting played, paid. But one thing I'd like to see and one thing I'd like to hope is that um, that money that's now being earned and the commercial value that you're starting to see women's cricket bring in, that money to be redirected to play the longer format. I think we've found the perfect format anyway with the Ashes series of one test, the three ODIs and three T20s. I don't see why we cannot have something similar against India, New Zealand, um, South Africa, the stronger countries. And then obviously as time builds on and the development of women's cricket continues to grow, that doesn't extend out to a Sri Lanka, a Pakistan, et cetera. So will we see a five test series with within the women's game? No, I don't think we will. And that's okay. But I think test cricket's got to be part of it because there is nothing more than as a player you want to see if you're good enough at the best and the hardest format in the game. And females just don't get that chance, which is disappointing. Yeah, we certainly hear plenty of fans who would love to see the girls playing more test cricket. So maybe one day in the near future, we'll see that. And Lisa, you retired from international cricket in 2013. And a few months later, uh, the Cricket Australia dramatically improved the pay conditions for the international female players. Now you had a full-time job at Cricket New South Wales. How did you balance that with your playing career? And during your career, did you do a lot of advocating and did you have to try and convince the higher-ups that you needed to make that shift towards professionalism? Yeah, so, um, you know, working full-time, working in a state association, obviously they understood (laughs) and celebrated you being um, part of the Australian team. But, you know, all of us had to take annual leave. So that what that meant was, um, and it was a choice of mine that I worked within cricket and then played cricket, but cricket was 24-7. I never got a holiday. I never got a chance to chill out um, by the beach because all your annual leave was taken. Um, you'd have to take annual leave to represent your state, even though it was the state association who you were working for. So um, it was difficult and challenging times, but one thing for sure is um, I wouldn't change it because I think what it did was give me a great balance um, that there was something outside of actual cricket. So um, that that was the that that was a good thing. Um, As for advocating, you know, I was part of a group of players that pushed for female players to be included in the ACA, um, which wasn't necessarily um, liked by CA at the time. Um, You know, I I felt that the women's game was going in a direction where we needed a voice that, you know, all of us had full-time jobs and employees that we were dealing with, plus we were having nego- negotiations or talks with Cricket Australia, plus we're doing home life, washing, 
Like we need someone to represent us and, and managers, obviously there's no payment involved in female cricketers. So we, none of us had managers either. So um, I certainly felt that the, the players association could be that voice. And, and, you know, it's taken a bit of time, but I think we've seen the benefit, haven't we, um, in the recent MOU in 2017 where the female players were able to, to start earning some big money. So, you know, I'm pleased that, there was a couple of years of discomfort for the current players at that time, but I think um, we pushed through it and we, we've seen the benefits now and it's only going to get better for the female players. And one of the things that has helped with the professionalism is the WBBL. You came out yeah. of retirement to be part of the first couple of seasons. Was that a, a big decision for you to make? No, I wanted to. I like, I mean, the, the fact that I had only just retired and one thing, you know, whilst I was really competitive and I loved the game of cricket, um, one thing I didn't think that I would miss the most was my teammates and spending time with that group of players because, you know, I tended to kind of be a bit of a, a loner sometimes. I was quite happy in my own company, um, but I missed playing with um, my mates. So uh, when the Sydney Sixers came knocking, I said, yeah, why not? A bit of fun. I don't have to worry about selection. But I was stressed because in your mind you still can play the game, but your body has slowed down. So I spent probably 12 months trying to get physically fit enough to cope. I wasn't worried about the skills, though I needed to be anyway, but um, the game just changed dramatically um, and I was really glad that I was part of the first one. They convinced me um, to be part of the second one. I wasn't quite sure about that. and um, In the end, personal circumstances meant that I missed out in playing the finals, but, um, you know, to see the Sydney Sixers and some of my mates do well at that that level was great and to be part of it. And great thing was I was playing and commentating and sometimes I was mic'd up. So I was commentating whilst I was playing. So um, it gave me a quite a unique insight, um, which certainly I think has helped my commentary. Mm, definitely. And when you did hang up the boots once and for all, did you think that the women's game would make the strides that it did in such a short space of time? Like, did you ever envision that within seven years, there'd be 86,000 people at the MCG, for example? Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, and I think, you know, you can put it down to the WBBL and um, Cricket Australia um, pushing the fact that, you know, it should be standalone as well. Um, you know, those type of decisions have certainly helped um, in enabling us to, to reach that 86,000 at the MCG. But, you know, I, I think it was everyone's hope that women's cricket would get to that stage. And um, I didn't think it would accelerate as quickly as it did. But um, it has, and now I just hope that, you know, we can continue that, that surge that we experienced on March 8th in 2020. Um, the pandemic certainly hasn't helped, and we're seeing a lot of countries, um, particularly India, who they still haven't got any cricket for their Indian side um, to play. Um, you know, that, that there are concerning th factors, but um, hopefully with uh, under-19 uh, ICC World Cup coming in, um, com games, like we've, there's a lot of exciting things that are coming up for the women's game. So I look forward to, to filling an MCG regularly, not just an ICC World Cup final. Now, we know you love the Sixers. Um, you also <laughs> love the New South Wales Breakers, winning, uh, I think you won 14 titles with them. WNCL is finally getting started this weekend. Um, what value in the calendar does that competition hold in your view? And what, what could players get out of it this year, particularly when there's a World Cup on the horizon? 
yeah, I actually think when you look at T20 cricket and you look at the batting order and the bowling order and you you kind of get a gauge of how many balls number five face and number six face and your, your, your second change bowler, how many overs do they bowl? That's not a lot of cricket. Um, and they're not being challenged and you, you may not get the player development that you would like, but the 50 over format, which is basically our test format <laughs> you know it's our Sheffield Shield um, it's the breeding ground and, and it's what's made Australian cricket so dominant is because that competition has been fiercely um, competed against by all of the states so um, you know I want a full I would love to see a full home and away um, competition come in um, and there is enough time. There isn't. You think that the fact that you know some of these players are now close to being fully professional. I mean, they're not getting paid that same percentage of what they should, but they're dedicating majority of their time. So there's enough time in the calendar to see a full WBBL and then a full home and away WNCL. But it's crucial for the development and for selection for the World Cup um, next year in New Zealand. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some some youngsters kind of put their hand up again, um, which will entice the selectors to find some some series or tournaments before that World Cup to see what their best um, best fifteen are for that uh, the next ICC event. But yeah, I'll don't don't worry. I'll be I'll be watching the score lines to see how everyone's going. Can the Breakers steal back the trophy, or is someone else gonna gonna win it this year? Well, it's getting quite competitive, isn't it? And the breakers have had a probably a big turnover of late. Um, there are a lot of youngsters like Phoebe Litchfield, Hannah Darlington, um, but also players like Elisa Griffith. Oh, you know, I expect them to, to be important. But, yeah, I mean, Victoria look pretty good, don't they? They've got a lot of um, senior international players, but also the ones that have kind of cracked into the Australian team and are having an impact. Um, so, yeah, I think it's actually going to be quite a quite a tight contest. And, and you can probably thank the WBBL as well for that because players, because we've, you know, two extra teams, those players that would be batting at five, six, seven, waiting in WNCL, they've been given the exposure and opportunity in the WBBL. So they take that confidence and then they can bring that back into the 50 over format. And you mentioned earlier jumping on the mic when you were playing for the Sydney Sixers in the WBBL. Was that your first taste of being on the TV, being in the media? And is that something you always wanted to do post your playing career was jump into the media side of things? Um, I was always quite happy to be interviewed within playing um, and I still remember when um, we were playing New Zealand, I think it might have been Elisa Healy's first T20 match. That was when Channel 9 first started covering our games and they mic'd us up. I still remember the first time they mic'd me up, I was bowling, but they didn't switch off the commentary whilst I was bowling. And I was bowling to, I think it was Nicola Brown, and she whacked me for a six and I could hear Mark Taylor going, whoa, that's a big one. I wonder if she's going to toss it up again. And I came in going, why not? Let's make it entertaining. Either she hits me for a six or I get out. So um, that was kind of my first exposure to all of that. But I got an opportunity in 2010. Elise Perry and I got flown up to the ACA All-Stars versus Australia, which is where Tim Payne actually broke his finger um, and then went missing for all those years. But I got five overs. I sat in between Mark Nicholas and Tony Gregg. And I thought, this is a pretty cool gig, like perfect place to sit, watch the game and just talk about it. And you get paid for it. Um, so ever since then, I was like, 
how do I get into this commentary? And then back then, obviously, there was there was no females involved worldwide, but um, just kept chipping away every time Channel 9 was at the SCG. I'd go say hello. I'd sit in the back and see how it all works and listen to what they say. And, yeah, got an opportunity with ABC Grandstand, actually, with the Big Bash coverage whilst I was still playing. Um, and then, obviously, when I retired, got a few more chances with Channel 9. Um, but I guess my main breakthrough was the IPL in 2015, and that was really my first tournament. So talk about being thrown in the deep end, not knowing what to do in the biggest T20 domestic competition in the world. But I had wonderful guys alongside me, Danny Morrison, Pommy Mbungwa, one of the one of the best directors, um, Simon Wheeler, who had kind of was at the start of a broadcast TV, you know, in Pakistan, you know, back in the 80s, things like that. So I had some great people that really helped shape my commentary in the initial couple of years. And what were some of the biggest surprises or, or learning curves that you experienced in that first IPL that you did? Um, that, that you always hear the director in your ear and when he starts yelling, stop talking, he doesn't mean you as a commentator. It's probably everyone else that's talking to him. But I stopped talking and my co-commentators turned to me like, what are you doing? I'm like, he said stop talking. Um, so there's that. There's also, you know, going out to Eden Gardens, I was um, inter- interviewing um, uh, Gotham Gang. No, I can't even think of his name. Um, anyway, I was interviewing like the, the noise that you hear from everyone else in, in the audience and then what you hear um, in your ear is, is really different. And so all of that. And then the other thing that I was surprised about, no one gives you any feedback. <laughs> um, you know, I'd been an athlete where you constantly critique your performance Um you quite openly say, yeah, I didn't quite get this right. You know, I didn't didn't play this shot. I, you know, misfielded here, all that type of thing. But in this industry, there's no feedback. It's literally you have to ask a thousand questions or you have to listen back to your stuff. And because we've, we've all watched a lot of cricket, you go, oh, that doesn't sound quite right or... Um, yeah, it's kind of... It's self-taught, which is, which is a shame, but... Um, I think it's certainly changing now as well. Yeah, you've had some pretty incredible experiences. As you've said, you've been at the IPL, you've travelled all around the world broadcasting cricket. Is that how you imagined imagined it would all turn out post your playing career? And do you sometimes have to pinch yourself that you you are just travelling around the world making cricket, making a life out of cricket still? Yeah, look, I left Cricket New South Wales in uh, 2014. So I retired 2013. Um, wanted a change, um, you know, the pathway was set for me to coach and I didn't want to coach players who I had coached when they were 12 and then became my teammates and then coach them again. I just didn't think that was ever going to work. Um, and I wanted a new challenge and I felt that there was an opportunity within commentary. Um, I, I had hoped and wished that, you know, I'd be fortunate enough to get to travel around the world and commentate, um, and yeah, I pinch myself, you know, people ask me, oh, you're away a lot. I go, yeah, but it isn't work to me. Like me watching cricket and looking at stats and um, going through different things, I don't see that as a tiresome job. Um, I just, I genuinely love it. And I'd literally put on the TV and I'd watch Ireland versus Afghanistan very happily. Um, so I do just love watching a lot of cricket. Um, so yeah, I'm very, very lucky with, with what I'm able to do. 
Yeah, similar to our question before about playing cricket with the boys when you were younger, have you ever experienced any backlash for your role as a female commentator in what is predominantly a male a male dominated industry? Uh, yeah, look, you'll you'll get a few um, social media some trolls that will quite happily come back and say you're the worst commentator, or I've had a few that say stay in the kitchen, which I think is like surely we can move on from that. Um, but other than that, you know, there's some people that come back to you and say, oh, you got this wrong. And I go back to them saying, thanks very much. I really appreciate that you're, you're tuning in. And they, they respond going, wow, thanks for taking the time to, to respond. Uh, we love listening to you. So, you know, what comes across as might be a bit of a negative tweet if you go back politely and explain certain things. Like I have a, n- a number of people that tweet me saying, I wish you would say bat, uh, batsman instead of batter and I give my reasons and explain why I do what I do and if they don't like it, oh, well, I've tried to educate them the reasons why. But, um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've, you know, I've obviously covered a fair bit of the Big Bash this season and um, I've had a lot of wonderful support and tweets and messages on Instagram and Facebook. So, you know, I'm, I'm very well supported. There's there's always going to be a couple of people, but I'm not always going to be everyone's cup of tea. I do realise that. Do you spend a lot of time reading through all the comments that you receive on social media and feedback from fans? Sometimes, yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think the fans are who who we're trying to engage with. So if I ignore them, then I'm probably not doing my job. So there may be things that really annoy people and it might be a certain phrase that I use or something. And if I think, oh, okay, yeah, point taken, I'll try and because sometimes you don't know what you say half of the time. Um, so, yeah, I try and engage as much as I can with, with the audience and um, I listen to their feedback. I, sometimes I take it on board, sometimes I don't. That's your prerogative. And you've spent a little bit yeah. of time with the current crop of female players sort of trying to pass on some of the lessons you've learned about being in the yep. media and being in front of the TV as they often now have to because of the, the growth of the game. What are some of the lessons that you've sort of tried to pass on to them and some of the things that you think you can teach them? Yeah, I think um, it was actually great. It was great to kind of work with CA to kind of um, help players out because we do – like I said, literally in commentary, we get thrown the mic, away you go. It's like, so what do I do? I'll just talk. Um, same type of thing when we throw players with the WBBL, we're throwing a lot of youngsters in front of cameras and um, there isn't a lot of training when it comes to that. So I guess the main things that you know I try to reiterate is be yourself um, and if that means you're silly, funny, happy, go for it. If you're serious and intent and you love your analysis of cricket, that's great too. Um, you know, so it was along those lines when, when you're actually being interviewed, you know, just focus on the person that's asking you the questions and pretend that you're in a cafe having a coffee. Um, it's with a mate. It's, it's relaxed. It doesn't have to be intense. Whereas, you know, players don't know what to do with their hands. They stand, you know, behind very bolt upright and, um, you know, things like that, or even if, you know, in this pandemic world, there's not someone interviewing you, the camera's straight at you, you know, getting comfortable just looking down the barrel, which is which is not a comfortable skill to have, um, but, you know, you're engaging with the audience. So trying to explain what the audience is seeing when they hear you or see you and how to kind of grow your brand as a player because 
let's face it, there's money now involved in the women's game and it's up to you if you want to promote your brand and, and your personality and, and try and to, to use it to your advantage. And when you look back over what's been a pretty incredible playing career and now post playing career, and you're now a member of two pretty special halls of fame, what are the biggest lessons you've learned in that time and how has it cricket shaped you as a person? Yeah, I like how you've given me LJ like the, the easiest question <laughs> ever, thanks. Um, I think the, the biggest lessons are um, you're not going to be always successful. <laughs> you're actually going to fall flat on your face a few times, but it's what you take from that and, and how you take feedback or how you take non-selection um, and how do you turn that into something positive. Um, so I think you've got to utilise and, and utilise those misfortunes to your advantage but also try and put it in perspective. Um, I think I've, I've been fortunate enough to do that throughout my career, that at the end of the day, it is, it is a game. I know now it's people's livelihoods, it's their job. So a lot falls on performances, but it is at the end of the day, just a game. Um, and if you can try and, and see it like that, you, you'll enjoy the ups and downs probably a little bit more instead of it being internalised and, and almost numbing you to, to stop you from performing your best. Um, I think you've got to enjoy the ride because people say, you know, you're a long time retired <laughs> than you are a player. So try and enjoy it because it is, it is a lot of fun and if you get a chance to play at the highest level, um, yes, there's more pressure that comes with that but, boy, there are some things that um, people can never take away from you and memories that a certain group of players will always have a, a, a great bond over. So, you know, I've been very fortunate throughout my career. Very well articulated, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of The Scoop and congratulations, of course, on your induction into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. Very, very deserving. Thanks, ladies. Sit back and enjoy the stroke play of Meg Lanny. This is excellent batting by Ash Gardner. Jonathan strikes again. She's on a hat-trick. She comes at Molyneux. Catch is taken by Perry. The Australian women's cricket team win their fifth T20 World Cup title in front of a magical crowd at the MCG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.